have the great honor and privilege of beginning today's, uh, this Easter series. The title of the series is The Tender Tears of a Loving King, uh, The Tears of Jesus. Uh, on his road to the cross, Jesus weeps on three significant occasions, and all of those have to teach us something about why God weeps. So today we will be in the book of John chapter 11. John chapter 11, will you turn there with me? John chapter 11. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister, and secretly saying, the master is come, and he calls for you. As soon as she heard, she rose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews then, which were in her house, sorry, the Jews then, which were in her house and comforted her, when they saw that Mary rose up hastily and went out, they followed her saying, she goes, uh, she's going to the grave to weep there. When Mary was come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in spirit and he was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, came to the grave, and there was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time he stinks. King James says, he stinketh. For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, said I not to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you hear me always, but because of the people which stand by, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto them, Lose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. We can never pray enough. So let's pray. Our Lord, we are grateful for your word. We ask that it would please you through the Holy Spirit to grant that our hearts would be edified and your name would be glorified. So that, Lord God, we will see the true intent of the Spirit in authoring this passage of Scripture. To the glory and honor of your name. Amen. The passage we have read is not an unfamiliar one. It is possibly the most well-known part of Scripture after John 3.16. It encapsulates the shortest verse in the English Bible, Jesus wept. 
The context is set at the beginning of the chapter. You do well to familiarize yourself with it. Mary and Martha are two sisters, both close friends of Jesus, who have a brother, and the brother is named Lazarus. Lazarus also is a close friend of Jesus. If you wondered what Jesus did with his afternoons, he was likely hanging out with this family. He was always in their home. He was always hanging out with them. And so, in fact, the Bible describes this family as a family that Jesus loved. Well, Lazarus falls sick. You could argue that he could not have chosen a worse time to fall sick. Because at this time, Jesus had just escaped a potential stoning by the Jews, and so he had fled from the region. And it is in this season when Jesus is away that Lazarus falls sick, and he is quite sick. His sisters realize that this is bad, and if nothing is done, Lazarus will die. And so they feel that the situation warrants the risk that they are going to take to call Jesus back to Bethany, even though they know the implications of that. So they send word to Jesus, and they tell him, you know, they send somebody to tell Jesus and tell him, Master, him whom you love is sick. Well, Jesus knows the urgency of the matter, but he nonetheless delays And consequently, Lazarus dies. Where we pick up our text is four days later, and Jesus shows up four days late to the funeral, and Martha somehow finds out that Jesus has arrived and runs to him. The first thing she says to him is, Master, if you had been here, my brother will not have died. She squarely lays the blame of Lazarus' death on Jesus. Well, right after that, a short theological discussion ensues between Jesus and Martha. Jesus asks Martha whether he believes that Lazarus will will rise again. And Martha says, of course I know Lazarus will rise again on the last day. And she says, no, 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 it's not about the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. And this theological discussion goes on for a while. And then Jesus sends Martha to Mary. He says, go call Mary. And so Mary, Martha comes secretly into the, um, into the room where Mary was. And he whispers something to her. And the Bible says that Martha, Mary runs out. And the Bible says that the Jews, supposing that Mary was going to weep at the grave, they run with her. They follow after her. I've always appreciated that portion of scripture because did you notice four days after the burial, the Jews were still present, consoling with the family? I think that's something good to follow after because oftentimes if you have grieved, you know, that people tend to leave the day of the burial. And oftentimes you know that you really need the companionship and the presence of people after that day. And so these Jews are good friends. Four days later, they are there. And when Mary runs out, the Bible says that they run out with her, for they suppose that she's going back to the grave to weep, for probably she had been doing that a number of times. 
but she's running to Jesus. And she arrives where Jesus is, and the scripture says she fell to his feet, and she begins to weep. And when she's weeping, her words are much like her sister's words. She says, Master, if you had been here, my brother will not have died. She's literally trying to say to Jesus, if you had treated this matter with a bit of urgency, my brother will not have died. The scripture says when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he asked, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. This all culminates in the shortest verse in the English Bible. The scripture says, and Jesus wept. He wept. It's a short verse, but a striking verse. Jesus wept. It has always amazed me how Jesus responded to these two sisters. Martha came and said to him, Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary came and said to him exactly the same thing. But they both got very different responses. Martha got a theological discussion. They were arguing with Jesus. She got truth. She told Martha, your brother will rise again. The mother said, I know, I know, in the last day. She says, yeah, that's something we tell each other during funerals. Thank you. Jesus said, no, I am the resurrection and the life. There's no magical thing that's going to happen on the last day so that Lazarus comes back. No, I am the one that called people back to life. And I am here. Do you believe this, Martha? Mother says, well, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Those other details are not very clear on them. Now, don't go look for that part. It's not there. Now you start asking, which versions are these these pastors use? Martha gets a discussion. Martha gets an argument. Martha gets her mind engaged. Mary? You know, the Bible gives us a bit of information about these two sisters. Martha, Martha was the truth teller. Martha was probably a choleric. She was the truth teller. She said it as it is. Earlier on, when they had um, hosted Jesus and his disciples, we read Martha was the one running around trying to make a meal. Why? Because Martha is very practical. Twelve men have come to visit you with their master. Lunch is not going to cook itself. Someone needs to do the work. She's practical. She goes out, she starts to work. When she comes, she is very annoyed at her sister. We don't read that Martha called Mary aside and told her, Mary, come, come, come Kidogo, to Kidogo. <laughs> no, she, she CC'd her boss. 
She addressed Jesus directly. She was too angry to deal with Mary. She was like, Lord, this is your fault. How can you encourage such behavior? <laughs> Won't you tell her to come help me? That was Martha for you. She's the one at the grave who told you, when Jesus said, roll the stone away, Martha said, you don't want to do that. It's stinking right now. Martha is the truth teller. Mary, on the other hand, Mary is probably a melancholic or a phlegmatic. She's very, she's tender, she's dear, she's kept to herself. The Bible says when she came out, when, when she was told by her sister, and Bible says when she ran out, Bible says all the Jews ran after her because they supposed she was going to the grave to weep. When Martha came out, no one ran after Martha. <laughs> But Mary, everybody ran, oh, she has gone to the grave again. That begins to tell you their personality differences. They were grieving the same brother. You could argue the same loss, but they were grieving very differently. And Jesus ministers to them personally and differently. Why? Because he's the wonderful counselor. He knows exactly who needs what. He knows that Mary can, Martha can handle truth in this time. Martha needs truth. Martha needs a theological discussion to make sense of what's happening. But when Jesus sees Mary at his feet, all that Mary gets is tears. He breaks down. He weeps. Martha got no tears. Mary gets tears. And I believe that we do well, you and I, to follow after the example of Jesus and to ask Jesus to give us wisdom to help those who grieve. Because there is no one size fits all. Sometimes the wise thing when you're dealing with a grieving person is to minister truth and to have a discussion because that's their personality and that's how they're grieving and that's how they're processing what has happened. And sometimes all that's needed is tears. And so this whole culminates in Mary at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus is weeping, and he says to them, where have you laid him? And the Bible says, Jesus wept. This is Perhaps one of the most striking things ever said concerning Jesus. It may not strike you if you're a casual reader, because a close look at the one who weeps would help us see the magnitude of these words. In fact, translators felt like that phrase was enough of a verse that stands alone. They didn't feel like they needed to add something to it to make it a complete verse. They just felt, no, John eleven thirty-five. it's a verse that stands alone. Jesus wept. It was striking enough for them. Why? Because before this, we had seen Jesus cast out devils. And we had seen Jesus amaze the Jews by his authority. We had seen him heal the sick and give sight to the blind. And gone to war with Satan in the wilderness and prevailed. We had seen him hush the sea to quietness and see and feed tens of thousands. We had seen him walk on water. Okay, he fed 5,000 and 4,000, 9,000. But there could have been more. 
And we have seen him, we have been acquainted with Jesus as a teacher, as a miracle worker. It's only now that we meet Jesus, the weeper. Perhaps two more poignant words have not been spoken together. Jesus wept. This verse doesn't say, and Jesus teared. It doesn't say, and a tear trickled down his cheeks. It doesn't say, and his eyes moistened. No. He says, Jesus wept. For you to understand this, you must look at the language that John uses. You see, the Jews did not weep the way you and I weep. Okay, maybe the way my people weep. Have you seen my people? There's a way my people weep. That is probably close to what the Jews did. Scripture tells us when Joseph saw his brothers after a long time and and was trying to do reconciliation and the whole thing that was happening, he was overwhelmed. The Bible says he went into a room, locked himself up, and the scripture said he wept. Now, the Bible tells us that it was so loud that all the Egyptians had him. So when the scripture says here that Jesus wept, no, it's not that a tear trickled down his face. He is in deep agony. The language that John uses actually means that Jesus burst forth into tears. Jesus is not the first prophet to weep. In fact, if he didn't weep, he would have been the only one that did not weep. We read of Abraham who wept over the death of Sarah and David over the death of Jonathan and Hannah over the, the mourning over her infertility. In Acts 20, we see how Paul wept the last time he was meeting the church at Ephesus. The psalmist always spoke of how night and day his bed was filled with tears. The Bible is rightly a book of tears. It is little wonder. That for centuries, Christians have called the world a valley of tears. Newsflash, it was the first sound you made. Before you learned to talk, before you learned to mama, before you learned to complain, you are proficient in weeping. Now Jesus truly becomes a son of man. He too weeps because he is not ashamed to be called our brethren. He has been made at all points like you and I. He weeps. The Savior weeps. And the question is this, why? Why does Jesus weep? Now that might look like a pretty obvious answer. There is a dead man. They are at a gravesite. You expect tears. But not quite because of who Jesus is. Why does Jesus weep? Now remember, he had already told his disciples why he went to the grave. Right when four days were up, he said to his disciples, "Uh, Lazarus is, is, is sleeping and I want us to go back so we can wake him up. He said, go back? They just tried to stone you there. And you want to go back? And he said, yeah, to wake up Lazarus. He said, but master, they told us he's sick. If he's sick and he's sleeping, 
then he will be fine. Sleep is good for sickly people. They will, he will recover. The Bible says Jesus looked at them and told them point blank, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there because I'm going to wake him up. So Jesus did not get the idea to wake Lazarus up at the grave. That's exactly what he was coming to do. He knew he was coming to do that. Question, why then did he weep? If you, you think about you, if you knew you had the power to go to a funeral, you are told so and so died four days ago, but you knew you had the power to go to that funeral and you knew that you were going there to raise that person from the dead. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would have gone into that funeral weeping? You knew, you knew, you know, I am coming here to raise this person from the dead. Would you have, this is one of the reasons why I tell people, you have to believe that the Bible is true. Because nobody would have made this up. No storyteller would have made this up. No one trying to make a story to make you believe in someone will tell you, this person said he was going there to raise him, and later on shows you that he raised him, and the first thing he did was weep. No, if you had gone to raise that person from the dead, you would have arrived there. You would not have wept. You would have gone there and said, make way, make way. You will see the glory of God. Mm. But Jesus doesn't do that. He weeps. Why? Oh, beloved, because Jesus is a perfect person. Jesus is not like you and me. Jesus will not allow himself even for one minute to be detached from your sorrow and mine. You know, sometimes when we are ministering to people who've gone through grief, we tend to tell them, you know, it's okay. God knows why this has happened. Your, your brother or your sister or your friend, they will rise again on the last day, and, and God knows. And sometimes we make it look like God is detached from my present situation. He is, can't wait for that last day to bring everybody back and be like, aha, told ya. But no, even though Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, it does not stop him from entering into their grief. And beloved, I'm here to let you know that even though God knows that he will raise your loved ones from the dead, even though he knows that he will literally undo every evil thing that ever happened on this planet and cause it to work out for your glory, he is not in the moment of our pain detached from it. The scripture says he is touched with the feeling of our infirmity. And in this point, he is touched with the feeling of Mary's infirmity, of the Jews' infirmity, of the pain that is caused by death. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that in their affliction, God too was afflicted. You know, sometimes we think that God is detached from our affliction. Last time I was here, we saw that he takes the things that happen to his body personally. He is afflicted in our affliction. Jesus enters into your sorrow and mine. We are often tempted to think that he doesn't because we, he knows how things will turn out. Oh, beloved, but he does. And so perhaps you're here. And much like Mary and Martha, you're saying, Master, if you had been here, 
my brother will not have perished. Master, if you had hearkened to our tears that we prayed night and day for the healing of our dad, we will not have had that funeral. Master, if you had hearkened to my cry, for when the baby said, when the doctor said there are complications, if you had hearkened to my cry, we wouldn't have had to go to Langata. Are you here? And you have wept like Mary? And like how you have wondered, where was Jesus? Why, why didn't he treat this issue with a sense of urgency? Jesus wants you to know that you might not understand the decisions he makes, but he is not detached from your tears. You know, Jesus knew very well that he was delaying. If you read earlier, when they came and told him, Master, him whom you love is sick, he said, the Bible says that Jesus, the Bible says that because Jesus loved Lazarus, he delayed. Like I told you, you can't make that stuff up. Imagine you're trying to make up, because uh, I hear some people say, well, you know, the Bible was just made up by men. Imagine you're trying to make up uh, a character, a fictional character, and you're trying to convince people that that fictional character is very loving. He is love personified. He loves the world so much that he will die for them. He's very loving. That fictional character receives news that a friend he loves dearly is sick. Will you make up this phrase? And because he loved him, he delayed. Would you ever make up that phrase? That's what the Bible says. The only reason they would have wrote that is because that's what happened. He says because he loved him so much, he delayed. Beloved, did you know that sometimes God refuses to answer your prayer in mind because he loves us so much? And yet, in the, do, you, do you think Martha and Mary felt so loved at the moment? Do you think as they waited and watched the life literally leave their brother? At one point, they had hope. He's coming. I know he's coming. He's never disappointed. He's coming. And as they watched, his life was going on. And off and off and off and it's dimming and dimming and they're looking at the time and the doctors and the physicians are there and they're saying, I think you need to say your goodbyes. He's not going to be here any longer. He says, no, 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 no. We told Jesus. We sent word to him in, in time. If, if he responded immediately, he had, he'll be here. Do you think they felt loved by Jesus? They did not. And I tell you the truth, the day you pray to him, the day you pray to God and your prayer goes unanswered, oh, would you, before you run from Jesus and turn away from Christianity, would you remember that God has recorded the story of Mary and Martha so that the Bible says we might be comforted when we need the comfort? 
Because perhaps a day is coming, or maybe for some of us, the day has come and passed when you felt your prayer went unanswered and your plea ignored. And yet the Bible says it was because he loved them. You know, God has been teaching me about glimpses of his love uh, just by having the privilege of being a parent. And every so often we have to take our daughter to the, the clinic visits and sometimes they entail vaccinations. Now, babies, newsflash, they don't like vaccinations at all, like don't like it at all. And so we get to the doctor and uh, you hand over your baby to the doctor and the doctor, you know, they tell you you have to hold the baby down. And usually the mothers will leave the fathers to that, you know, act of terror, you know? <laughs> I don't want my baby to have memories of me pinning her down. You be the bad cop. Hold your daughter down, you know? And my daughter screams. I mean, she weeps. And I can, I can if I was to put her face into words, this is what she's looking at me and saying, what sort of betrayal is this? I thought you loved me. How could you leave me to this complete stranger to poke holes in my skin? Imagine if I tried to have a conversation with my daughter and be like, baby, you see now a vaccine? No, I can't have that conversation with her. Why? Because of the intellectual gap between myself and my daughter. Not that I am very smart, it's just I'm older. <laughs> the intellectual gap is too high. She wouldn't understand it. It will be a number of years before she understands it and she will understand it so much she will do it to her own children. And yet at the moment she doesn't feel loved. She doesn't feel like I'm caring for her. Beloved, is it possible is it possible? Because sometimes we say, well, I can't see a good reason why God would allow this or allow that. But is it possible that because of the intellectual gap between us and God, there are things that he will allow that will in the moment seem cruel and wrong and wicked, but he is acting out of love? That's what the Bible teaches. And here we see that Jesus acts out of love for Mary and Lazarus and Martha. And it results in the death of Lazarus. I wonder if you're here and you've lost faith in God because of something you prayed for and you didn't get it. And you thought to yourself, I can't believe in a God that lets that happen. Is it possible he did it because he loved you? Because for you to say that there is no way, there is no way that God would have allowed that if he loves me, is for you to claim omniscience. It is for you to say that if there was a loving reason for this thing to be done, you would know it. Because you are omniscient. If there was a loving reason for God to let something so terrible happen, 
Surely we will know it. And if we don't know it, then there can't be. Do you see the arrogance in that statement? Would God allow you and me to have the humility to say, like Job, even though he slay me, yet will I follow him? You know what Job is saying? I don't claim to understand how the universe works. I don't claim to understand why God lets the things happen that he lets happen. I don't agree with it. That's what the whole book of Job is about. Job at no point agreed with, with, uh, with what God was doing. You know, if you only read chapter 1 of Job, you will think that Job suffered very well. No. The Bible says at the end of chapter 1, we are told, and in all this, Job did not sin against God. Then chapter 2 began. And he started. Because in chapter 2, he was so overwhelmed with suffering. He was so super overwhelmed. That's why his wife starts to look at him and says, just curse God and die. It little wonder Satan did not afflict that woman. She was part of the affliction. She was, <laughs> she was part of the plan. All, she killed all of Job's kids. He left the wife. I always wondered why he left the wife. <laughs> she was like, this will be added suffering for Job. I will leave her. Read the scriptures. The Bible says Job was, Job said all manner of things. When in chapter one, the Bible says, he said, blessed be God, he has given, he has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was the last nice thing Job said. Read the whole book. Incidentally, people only know chapter one. Read the rest of what Job said. He started to say, I have never done anything wrong in my life. When I see poor people, I help them. When people come and they are orphans, I give their parents jobs. I mean, I give them jobs. He said, I help people right, left, and center. He says, what, what fault did God find with me so that he should take me through such, such pain? He said, in fact, oh, they sang birthday song for me. I cast the day I was born. I don't know what God was thinking to bring me into this world. He was overwhelmed with pain and suffering. He said very many terrible things. He was basically saying, when I see God, I have questions. Eventually, in chapter 38, God showed up. He said, I heard you have questions. The Bible says that just before Job could ask anything, the Lord said, no, wait, I have questions. He asked Job, Job, do you know how to split light seven ways? Job said, no. He says, oh, do you know what the earth stands on? Do you know what keeps the earth, why is the earth not falling continually in space? Job said, I, I don't know. Oh. Do you know why the ostrich puts its head in the sand and thinks it's not being seen? <laughs> now I'm telling you it's in the Bible. Job said, no. He says, ah, do you know why horses run towards battle and not away from battle? He said, no. He says, you don't know. Okay, do you know how to separate light from darkness? He said, no. Okay. Were you there when I put the angels as background music and did creation work? 
There's no, some of you are going to look for that verse. Now, <laughs> it was the, the same idea being conveyed. The angels were God's background music as he did uh, the rest of creation work. Job said, no. Do you know what God was basically trying to tell Job? He was saying, Job, if you can barely understand how I run the physical universe, do you really want us to have a discussion about how I run, I run the spiritual universe? And oftentimes, God in much humility is asking you and I the same thing because when we're going through suffering, the question we ask is this, why? And I tell you the truth, it will be the equivalent of my daughter asking me, why the vaccines at six months of age? I, 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 can't, I can't have that conversation with her. And yet it must happen. And in much the same way, would you and I take heart in knowing that God can have reasons beyond what your mental capacity and mind can comprehend of seemingly allowing grievously difficult situations and yet be doing it all for our good. So are you here and you're weeping? May you find comfort in the tears of Jesus. May you know that he weeps with you. May you know that you're not alone in your weeping. For indeed, the scripture says, we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He is touched. And so Jesus weeps so that we might find comfort in his tears. But I want you to consider also that he could have repressed his tears. He didn't have to cry. He could have kept them inside. He could have, you know. But he doesn't. He burst out. He let them come forth. Beloved, the scripture says that the disciple cannot be greater than his master. If Jesus wept, so will we. And I fear that this is not popular in our day and culture for many reasons. Many people don't weep when they need to. There are many people. In fact, I fear that there is often far more sorrow than there is tears. Because often people that need to be weeping, that need to be grieving, there is no grieving no weeping. Sorrows indeed abound, but tears be few. And this is often because of misconceptions concerning tears. And Jesus, in this passage, breaks down all those misconceptions. The first misconception is this. I will not weep. I have the truth. I know that in the last day, God will raise my loved one. I know that my loved one is right now in the presence of Jesus, enjoying himself, free from the sorrows of this world. And so I will not weep, for I know the truth. Oh, beloved, but didn't Jesus also know the truth? Did he not know exactly where Lazarus was? Did he not know that in a few minutes, let alone millennia, he will raise Lazarus back from the dead? And yet that does not stop him from weeping. 
In fact, Jesus walks into this situation with the knowledge that nobody else here has. Jesus knew exactly why what happened happened. Remember what he said to, to his disciples? He says, this sickness is not unto death. He says, but so that the glory of God might be revealed. He knew exactly why this whole situation happened. You and I often don't know why it happened. Jesus knew the whole truth, and yet it did not stop his tears. Well, some people say, well, I have joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength, and therefore I shall not weep. Oh, beloved, but did you have more joy than Jesus? The Bible lets us know in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was the happiest man who ever lived. He says, because thou hast loved righteousness and holiness, God has anointed you with oil above, with the oil of gladness above all your peers. He was the happiest man who ever lived. And yet the Bible says he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he says, we are always sorrowful. No, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Did you notice that? Always rejoicing, yet sorrowful? Because, beloved, in the mind of God, joy can coexist with sorrow. Sorrow, the presence of tears and weeping, does not signal the absence of joy. Why? Because joy in the Bible is not an emotion. It's not a laughter necessarily. Joy is a settled peace in the heart of every believer that despite the circumstances, God is in charge. And that can coexist with tears. The other reason sometimes we don't weep is because we say, well, that's weakness. I, I, I don't want to be weak we are filled with fear and shame. And we don't want others to see us weep. But look at Jesus. He wears his heart where men can see them. Oftentimes, because of this attitude, many people, they, they immediately want to, to wipe their tears. They don't allow themselves to grieve. You say, accept and move on. Life has to go on. It's okay. Life has to go on at some point. But didn't you ever read the scriptures that every time somebody died in the Bible, they paused life for a number of days? <clears throat> read the Bible. The Bible says when Moses died, the children of Israel wept for 30 days. When David died, the same. They paused everything. They allowed themselves weeping time. They grieved. Weeping is not weakness, beloved. Do not deny your friends your tears. Sometimes you go to a place and you refuse to weep because you're afraid you'll be thought weak. Jesus was not weak. And yet he wept. What sort of man was Jesus? Oh boy, the, the man was, he was courageous. One time they came and told him, you know, Herod has said he's coming for you. He said, go and tell that fox. I am preaching today, tomorrow, and the day after that. He can come for me if he wants. That's the guy. That's Jesus. 
One day he walked into the temple and they were selling all manner of stuff. We don't read that he went and he said, I want to speak to management. <laughs> no, no speaking to management. Bible says he looked around and made up a quip. Asked nobody for permission. By the time they were saying, tell us, who has given you authority? They were speaking from outside. <laughs> that was the man, the kind of man he was. He was not afraid. He was not a weak man. And look at the company he joins. It's the company of David. Because I know there are some of our cultures that tell us, you know, we, men must not weep. Oh, really? Then Jesus is not in that WhatsApp group. And that's a very, very dangerous WhatsApp group to be in. Because Jesus wept. What are the sort of men you find in this WhatsApp group? Jesus. David. Are you more manly than David? When was the last time you killed 100 Philistines and took their foreskins? <laughs> To pay for bride price for your oratio. <laughs> you, you went with cows. David went with four skins of 100 Philistines. This is the man who at 15 years old, he slaughtered a lion. Why? Not because it threatened his life, because it threatened his sheep's lives. A few days later, the brother went and killed a bear. So you go to this 17-year-old boy, he has a bear head on his, uh, as one of his trophies, he has a lion head and another of his trophies, and he's soon going to add the head of a giant. If you want to describe manliness in the way many of these secular books define manliness, that's David, right? Yet the Bible says, if you read the book of Psalms, because of our culture, you would be forgiven to think that you're reading a teenage girl's you know, diary. Because David is always weeping. In fact, at one point he said, I have drenched my pillow with tears. And at this point he was the king. The next morning he is the, defend, he is the, he is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. He is going to lead the people to battle. He says, how was your day? I just killed 15,000 on that day. Yet this man, when he was saying bye to his friend Jonathan, the Bible says they embraced and they wept. They wept. You know, somebody rightly said, back in the day when men used to do manly things, they were not afraid of weeping. Nowadays, we carry a laptop, go sit at a desk, we say, men, don't weep. <laughs> no, it's not weakness to weep. Let yourself weep. Just weep. And it's sad because the women don't even help it. The men grew up being told, you know where wachakulia jikaze kama mwanaume, wewe ni mwanaume usilie. So they learnt it. And then the women don't help it because even today you hear women having a conversation, hey, ni wana hako kama mwanaume karalia huko. When men hear that, they make a mental note, hmm, nijikute. No, weeping is not weakness. Jesus wept. And in weeping, he freed you and I to weep. Thirdly, we don't weep generally because our culture is generally uncomfortable with tears. We, we are uncomfortable with tears and sorrow. We don't know what to do with that space. It's one of the reasons why if you're, if you're married or if you're dating and you've ever had a... a um, 
Some of you call arguments, some of you call it domain, some of you call it heated discussion, those ones, right? Some of you, strong conversation. What is strong conversation? <laughs> strong. We are having a strong conversation. <laughs> if you ever have those strong conversations and one of you begins to weep, I will not name the party that usually <laughs> begins to weep, all of us here know that argument is over. It is over, it is finished, kaput, that is it. That is the end of the argument. You know why that happens? Because the other party doesn't know what to do with those tears. Especially if they know you are on the wrong. And now, here, okay, so okay, how do we navigate this space? Very uncomfortable. We don't know what to do with that space. That is actually reflected in our culture. Our culture doesn't know what to do with tears. And I fear that it is beginning to reflect in our funeral and memorial services, in the body of Christ. We are uncomfortable with tears, and so we would rather change that whole scenario into something different. I remember once I attended a, a funeral somewhere, and the pastor, uh, he, he came to console the people, and this was how he began. He began by saying, we are not here to mourn. I said, ah. I, th I thought that is exactly why <laughs> we came. He went ahead to quote some verses out of context and, and confuse the people of God. He says, we are not here to mourn. He is being a victim of his culture because modern culture doesn't know what to do with tears. That's the reason, a lot of times, and, and it even reflects in how you and I console and grieve with each other in times of mourning, because you and I, we, we go for, for, for the, uh, we, we meet this person and they're grieving and we've gone to visit them, and they're weeping and they're, they're in this sorrowful mood, and we, we have convinced ourselves that our objective is to cheer them up. We even sometimes say to them, cheer up. What do you, the Bible did not say, cheer up those who mourn. He said, mourn with those who mourn. Your responsibility when you go there is not to cheer them up. It's to mourn and weep with them. And if you're here and you've lost someone, you know the priceless tears of a friend who wept with you in that season. You are not looking for those who would get you out of that space. And oftentimes, a lot of people are trying to, the Bible says, there is a time to laugh and there is a time to weep. The funeral is the place of weeping and mourning. It is not the place of laughter. And there is a reason for that. The Bible says it is better to be in the house of mourning than to be in the house of feasting. Why? It says because the living take it to heart. If we blur the lines between the house of mourning and the house of feasting so that there is no difference between the house of mourning and the house of feasting, then there are no more places left for people to contemplate eternal, de eternal destiny. And so it's important that when we come into the house of mourning, we do exactly that. We mourn. Do not be uncomfortable with tears. Do not try to cheer up those who are mourning, a time to cheer them up will come 
but it is not the season of grief. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verse 20, the New Living Translation, singing cheerful songs to a person with a heavy heart is like taking someone's coat in cold weather or pouring vinegar on a wound. Don't do it is what Jesus is saying. Don't do it is what the Bible is saying. Don't pour vinegar on a wound. Don't sing cheerful songs to a person with a heavy heart. Jesus doesn't come to, and I told you, Jesus had every reason to enter into this place and crack jokes and laugh and tell them, mm, you get, why are you laughing? Where is that grave? He had every reason, but he will not allow himself to be detached from their sorrow even one minute. May God grant that you and I will not be detached from the sorrow of those that grieve in our midst. That we will indeed do what the scriptures say and weep with those who weep. Beloved, the way that Jesus responds in this situation is the best way to respond. There is no better way to respond. Because Jesus is perfect. And so the way he responds is the perfect way to respond. Beloved, it is Christ-like to weep. And so I encourage you. If life has brought you to such a place as you should weep, then would you weep as did Jesus? In conclusion, aren't we glad that the story doesn't end there? Imagine if we read and Jesus wept and he went about his business. That's not what we read. He did more. He asked amidst tears, and loud weeping, he said, where have you laid him? And they said, master, come and see. They thought he wanted to just go and weep there profusely, just, you know, be close. He was feeling bad for having missed the funeral. And so they, they led him. They said, come and see. And he went, and they said to him, and he said to them, roll the stone away. Roll the stone away? Remember Martha, Sister Martha? Martha kicks in. What do you mean roll the stone away? He's stinking by now. Martha is very practical, right? She's like, you know, he's my brother. No, no, that would have been Mary. But not Martha. He says, I know. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Now he's stinking. Don't open that place. And Jesus says to Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? He says, roll the stone away. And the Bible says, a few of the Jews, and you know he didn't tell them, roll the stone away, I want to raise him. He just said, roll the stone away. They didn't know what he wanted to do. So they went, pushed the stone back a bit. And then the Bible says, Jesus looked at the entrance and he said, Lazarus, come forth. If they thought he had been mad, they stamped it on that day. <laughs> because they had accused him of being cuckoos a number of times. They said, are we wrong in saying that you are mad and you have a demon? They had told him that several times. Today they stamped it. Look at him standing in front of a grave and calling on to the man. He doesn't say, Lazarus, rise from the dead. No, he says, Lazarus, come out. He called him like he was calling somebody on the other side. 
He says, Lazarus, come forth. And they thought, okay, he's, uh, I mean, there are different ways of grieving. It's fine. That's his own. The Bible says, well, the Bible doesn't say this part, but they had doop. And they were thinking, what doop? And then they had again, doop. And they were wondering, what, 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 what's happening now? I watched a movie where Jesus calls Lazarus, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus comes out like this. <laughs> Poor directing on the part of that director. <laughs> the Bible says that this man was bound all the way up. There is no way he's walking out like this. The only way he's coming out is poop. So Lazarus hopes all the way, and finally he hopes and he's standing out. The Bible says only a small part of his face had been left, and then Jesus said, untie him. Untie him? Now, I've, I've, always, I've always imagined what that scenario must have been like. Untie him? Who would have started that, that process? Untie him. Why are you saying untie him like this is a process that happens? You know, this is something we do. Four days later, we come, we untie corpses that, that hopped out. But Jesus, so cool, calm, collected. He did not get to the tomb and start doing chants. He didn't get to the tomb and say, okay, now I declare prayer and fasting. No. He just came and he says, Lazarus, come out. And somebody has rightly said he had to limit it to Lazarus. Because if he had said, come out, everybody would have just come out of the graves. So he had to specify. The one I am calling is Lazarus. I know you all there want to come out. It's Lazarus. Oh, the Bible says, the dead man came forth. Don't you love that that's how the story ends? Before this time, they had had a theological conversation and argument with Martha about the resurrection and the day of resurrection and who is the resurrection and who is the life. And Jesus was trying to, he says, Martha, let me give you an illustration. I know you're so fixated on what will happen the last day, but the last day is not an event in itself. I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not an event. It is a person and that person is standing in your presence today. And he said on that day, he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came forth. And they untied him. And he asked for fish. <laughs> and he ate. And they asked him, how was it? <laughs> and he said, what are <laughs> I don't know what conversations they had with Lazarus. But Lazarus came out four days later. Decomposition had set in. Jesus called him out and he came forth. Oh, beloved, that day is not past. That day is coming again. The Bible says the day is coming when all who lie in their graves will hear his voice. On that day, he will not start with Lazarus. On that day, he will say, come out. And all who had died will come forth from their graves. The Bible says the sea will give up its dead. Why? Because there are many who died at sea. The ground will give up its dead. Why? Because there are many who died in the ground. You remember Elijah? 
Elijah was told by God, Ezekiel, sorry, was told by the Lord, can these bones live? And Elijah says, I don't know, only you know. And he says, prophesy to the bones. What will happen on that day is similar to what happened on that day. Because some people died in the ocean when they were, I don't know what they were doing. They were traveling from one point to the other. Others were skiing. If you, if you get yourself there and you are skiing, the Lord, may the Lord be merciful to you. How will you explain yourself to Jesus? You know I was skiing. Hmm. But even you, you will come forth on that day. Everyone will come forth. Doesn't matter. Some people got uh, blown up because of terror attacks and their parts were blown into pieces. The Bible says your bones will find your bones wherever they are. It doesn't matter. Listen, this same body that you have today, it will reconstitute itself. That's what Elijah, Ezekiel saw. He says one bone went looking for its other and ligament looking for its other. Finally stood a great army. On that day, the Bible says that God will call forth all that died in him and the dead in Christ will rise first. Didn't you read the Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he led captivity captive. What does that mean? The scripture tells us that on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, many holy men, the book of Matthew chapter 28, many holy men came forth from their graves. He did it again. He, he came forth with many people. So if your house was built over Lazarus, over Abraham's grave, you just see him walking out. And you're like, who are you? He says, I'm Abraham. He says, ah, nice to meet you. Where are you going? To meet with him. He called. Where are you going? The Bible says the cloud received him. He led captivity captive. On that day, he led all those holy men to heaven with him. The Bible says they had been seen in the city for a few days. That will happen again. So those of you whose houses have been grieved, built, on graves of holy men. If that day happens and the rapture has not happened, you will, you will be having a meal. And then you hear, pa, 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 pa. okay, we don't know how the trumpet will sound. And then, boom, there goes Elijah. Okay, we don't know who will come. Elijah is going to come from the other side. But Bible says, when he calls, all those who died in him will rise. Do you know that's the first time we'll have conversations that start with this statement? How did you die? We will talk about stuff like that. And people will say all manner of things. Me, I was just showering and then I slipped and then boom, there was Michael. Oh, really? Hey, Paul. And then there was me, I was arguing with my wife and then poop. And then there I was. And then, oh, boy, Paul. And we'll have conversations about who died, how. Can you imagine how much fun it will be just the first day recounting how people died? <laughs> Why? Because the king of kings and the holder of the keys of life and death will have finally, the Bible says, brought to naught death and pain. And on that day, he will fulfill this scripture that indeed weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. He will fulfill the scripture in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Because on that day, he will bring to naught all that brings tears to our eyes. And yes, when he came the first time, he wept with us. Oh, but the second time, he's not coming to weep with us. 
The second time he's coming to wipe away every tear that has ever been shed. And the Bible says that on that day, it says he will wipe every tear that has ever shed. And the weight of glory that will be revealed will be nothing. The, the suffering that we have gone through will be nothing to compare to the weight of glory that will be revealed. Beloved, would you take heart that we have a tender king with loving tears because he has wept for you and I. But in conclusion, I fear that there is a set of tears that he will never wipe. There is a set of tears that he will never quench. The Bible says that there is a place called hell. In that place, the scripture says, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, those tears will never be wiped. Those tears will continue forever and ever and ever and ever. The Bible calls it eternal damnation. Who will be weeping those tears? Those who spanned his first tears. When he came the first time, he wept for you and I pleading you to come to him so that he can console you in your, in your sorrows. In that day, those who span his grace and refuse his tears will have to weep for themselves. Do not be numbered amongst them if you're here. Do not be numbered amongst those that will weep and gnash their teeth forever and ever. Don't be there. Let his tears. And so are you here and you're a believer? Let his tears console you. Let the tears of Jesus remind you that he's touched with a feeling of your infirmity. You know the truth is this, that it's wonderful that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, ain't it? But Lazarus died again. He had the unfortunate experience of having two funerals. His sisters, if he died before them, they had to weep again. Have you ever wondered why Jesus doesn't just deal with pain and suffering once and for all? Why doesn't he just end it right now? Oh, but it's because if he ended it right now, he will have to end you and I. Because why is there evil and suffering in the world? Because of your sin and my sin. If any one of us here is without sin, let him lift up his hands. And here's the thing. As long as there remains one sin in this world, there will continue to be pain and brokenness because sin is what broke his world. And there is no way for God to bring back paradise without dealing with sin. But that's what he's doing at the cross. At the cross, he deals with sin so that he will ultimately destroy pain and suffering without having to destroy you and I. And in that day, he will have accomplished it. And the truth is this. In this broken world, whatever prayer God answers, it will always end. It will always be undone. Doesn't matter if God heals you from sickness. You will die from something else. Doesn't matter if God provides for you food in this world because you are hungry. Something else will kill you. If you are broke and you pray for God to give you money and brokenness doesn't kill you, something else will kill you. In this broken world, it doesn't matter what miracle God performs. The fall will undo it. 
That is why every person Jesus healed died. Every cripple he gave back their legs died. Every person he fed with manna on, in the wilderness died. Every person that God intervenes for in this broken world dies. You know, I often ask people, I've asked, why didn't God intervene and do a miracle? No, the bigger question is, why does he ever intervene? Because he knows that I will still intervene and after 30 years you will still die. But do you see his mercy and grace in intervening even though he knows that this world will continue to swallow up miracles? That's why the Bible says that he has prepared a city. There is another city, another place where if you believe in him, you and I will be taken to that city. In that city, there is no pain, no suffering, no sin, no sorrow. We will live with God forever and ever. That is what we are living towards. And if you're here and you believe in Jesus, then that is your future. And so you can go through whatever pain you're going through now because Jesus weeps with you and because he indeed will undo all our tears. But at the same time, beloved, it is also true that if you're here and you do not know Jesus, there is a far worse place that's waiting for you. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can run and turn to him and he will see you And he will embrace you. And he will welcome you. And we will be with him forever and ever. May the Lord bless you and keep you.